0: This is the Darcy Jarrell Podcast, episode 36. Today my guest is Keith Knight, Managing Editor at the Libertarian Institute and host of the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. We're going to be talking about his book, The Voluntarist Handbook. Keith Knight, welcome to the Darcy Jarrell Podcast. How are things?
1: things are uh, doing pretty well besides uh, the fact that we might be bailing out uh, some more irresponsible people. I mean, gosh, uh, welfare at both levels of the spectrum, whether it's the banks or the average Joe. Can anyone be consistent in the political realm? It's just unbelievable that, uh, that, that even when they tell us, well, When you're in kindergarten, if you do something bad, it doesn't matter if other people do bad things as well. Oh, someone told you to do something? Well, if your friends told you to jump off a bridge, would you do that? It's like we expect responsibility from kindergartners, but cops, well, they're just doing their job. Well, the bankers, well, you know, bad things might happen if uh, we don't bail them out. The amount of inconsistency within the political spectrum and how bad is Justin Trudeau on every issue? I mean, I didn't even know you were Canadian until you just told me this now. But to see this guy champion the little guy in the working class and then how he vilified the truckers immediately. Oh, its yeah. it, This is the old uh, Thomas Sowell wisdom where he says the reason people are not so logical with regard to politics and the like is not because – These issues are so difficult to understand. They're just looking for heroes to admire and other enemies to vilify because that is much more emotionally satisfying. So once you look at it through that lens, you can see how people will say the banks are evil. Also, we should be forced to give the banks a bailout. The middle class is why we need a strong state. Also, there are a bunch of racists who need to have their bank accounts shut out. Uh, Once you start looking at it from that lens, you can see that it's much more about personalities, much like how people will root for the Lakers. Doesn't matter if Kobe Bryant or Russell Westbrook is on the team at the time. Whoever's in the uniform is who they are going to side with. Unfortunately, they uh, also do this in politics. But other than that, uh, things are good. Thank you for having me on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, glad to hear things are doing good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because of uh, your wonderful book, the Voluntarist Voluntarist Handbook. Um, now, actually, while well, I got you, I mean that's a that's one thing I've always struggled with is the pronunciation. I hear it pronounced both ways. Or is there a um, a nuance in in the uh, definition there between voluntarist and voluntarist?
1: A very wise man once told me the vast majority of disagreements come down to a difference in definitions. So that's why on page three, I have all the definitions of the important terms that we talk about in the book. I pronounce it voluntarist because it uh, focuses on the word voluntary. Um, Lying psychos like the Young Turks think that what this means is everyone's going to volunteer for everything, and they go – You know, actually, it sounds a lot like communism. You think people are just going to volunteer. The point is engaging in voluntary interactions as opposed to coercive ones, whether or not money's involved is a basic uh, utility that can sometimes apply, cannot, so long as people have the right to opt out. It's defined as the moral position, which maintains that no peaceful person can justly be Submitted to the control of others in the absence of his or her own consent. That's the definition I get from Auburn Herbert, who I – who I credit with really uh, coming through uh, with the initial idea of volunteerism. You can find people talking about it before him, but he really set the framework in motion. And I have him in uh, one of my chapters here. By the way, the book is $20 on uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon if you want a copy. But if you want a free PDF, go to libertarianinstitute.org, and you'll get the entire book totally free in a PDF version.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well I got my copy off of Amazon um and it made it here to to Justin Trudeau's Canada no problem despite the uh the censorship and internet stuff that he has going on. Uh just out of curiosity the the Oberon Herbert one The Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State. I don't I I think the first time I actually saw that one was in this book um the one he's really well known for is What's it called? Mr. Spencer's and the Great Machine or something like that?
1: Yeah, uh, I would have to reread that one, but um, oh gosh, it's been so long. But uh, I know that uh, Stefan Kinsella recommended that to me. I can't even for the life of me remember what uh, what it's about. But there's a good book on a uh, collection of his essays and speeches, which I came across. And the only reason I did is because one person, Jeffrey Tucker, mentioned that uh, right and wrong compulsion of the state was by far and away the one thing he would recommend for Uh, non-libertarians to read, if they wanted a good intro into what we think. I hadn't really heard of him uh, before or since, so I wanted to put that in this book. And then I thought, well, if we're already asking people who are used to things like TikTok and YouTube shorts, they're going to read the whole essay. So what I did instead is I took my like 15 or 20 favorite quotes from that essay and put them in this book along with excerpts from books like No Treason by Lysander Spooner, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, The Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose. All of those you will find experts. Chaos Theory by Bob Murphy. You'll find um, excerpts in uh, in this book. This way uh, you can reread uh, those books basically by just getting the highlights of them. And uh, I thought it would be much more efficient uh, for the reader's time.
0: Yeah, well, it's just a wonderful collection of our uh, you know the libertarian uh philosophy and and kind of a uh you know a, a history at the same time because some of these essays like going back to Lysander Spooner and and stuff i mean that you know there's some historical context you know involved in in what they're talking about that that's uh very interesting you know to to look at um you know the one th- the thing I was mentioning to you before we started the show too. Now you are the managing editor for the Libertarian Institute, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So what one of the problems we have I I try and bring as much Canadian content onto our show as I can. Um and, and we don't have a lot of you know these great kind of organizations or nonprofits and and think tanks. Uh, that work specifically in the libertarian uh, philosophy, like like what exists with the Libertarian Institute and other great places in the United States. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the Libertarian Institute and the work you guys do?
1: Yes. What we at the Libertarian Institute are trying to do is create a free educational archive. So you know how progressives lie about saying we want to provide a free education, and by that they mean uh, coercively funded it through the state. It's about as dishonest as saying, you know, the military is actually free since, you know, the government pays for it. So, yeah, that's the same thing as free education. What we actually want to do is create a free archive so anyone can go to libertarianinstitute.org, use the search engine, type in agriculture subsidies, Winston Churchill, minimum wage, bank bailouts, Federal Reserve, and get the libertarian position on things uh, like that. We also have a uh, news column where we keep up to date with – vitally important uh, things going on with Russia and China, one of the things we're really pushing at this point is a uh, genuine understanding of the roots of the Ukraine situation. So what is often left out of the CNNs and the Fox and the MSNBCs is the fact that in 1991, Secretary of State James Baker had an agreement with the head of Russia, Mikhail Gorbachev, that if Germany was able to reunify east and west, that NATO would not expand one inch eastward into Russia, just as the U.S. did not want the Soviets having a base in Cuba, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Americans surrounding Russia, that would be too close for national security purposes, whatever. They made that agreement. Since then, I think it's been 14 countries that have joined the North American Treaty Organization. Then, in 2008, William Burns, the current director of the CIA, was uh, part of uh, the uh, Foreign uh, Advisory Service for the American government, and he releases a document that he titled, Niet means nyet. This means that if ukraine or georgia were to join nato that that would be russia's red line and russia would then respond militarily in 2014 under barack obama people like lindsey graham amy klobuchar chris murphy uh john mccain victoria newland went to ukraine and through uh ngos non-governmental organizations specifically the national endowment for democracy Staged a coup and overthrew the Viktor Yanukovych government, who was a little more favorable to Vladimir Putin, and installed a guy named Petro Poroshenko. Now, the people in the east of Ukraine, what's referred to as the Donbass region of Donist and Luhansk, they had voted heavily in favor of Yanukovych, so they just didn't recognize the new regime. Now, just as in America, you're not allowed to enter the Capitol building unless you're given explicit permission or you're an evil terrorist, these people were then designated as terrorists. And this began a seven to eight year uh, conflict, which is now referred to as the Donbass War between the Ukrainian regime and the Donbass separatists. That is so vitally important to understanding the roots of this as opposed to uh, Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine. Now, the first time that NATO ever declared war, n- n- currently Ukraine isn't officially part of NATO. They just get a tons of arms and NATO defends them relentlessly in uh, the public, uh, I- in uh, I- in the media. So it's not much different. Just on paper, they're not technically part of it. But uh, notice that uh, in November uh, of last year, when Ukraine bombed Poland and killed two civilians, Zelensky came out and said, Vladimir Putin has bombed Poland. NATO needs to respond since Poland's a NATO country, almost getting uh, them to declare Article five or war on Russia. They didn't declare war on Ukraine for bombing Poland when it came out that it was actually a Ukrainian defense missile, even though uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin came out and said it eh, turns out it was actually a uh, missile from Ukraine. So. The idea that uh, well, NATO is the sacrosanct thing that we have to appreciate and these are the agreements and these are the laws and it's pro-democracy versus authoritarianism or autocracy, it's complete nonsense. It's the psycho elite in America and their friends versus everyone else at the expense of everyone else. The first time NATO declared war was after 9-11. And they fought a 20 year war in Afghanistan, which after 20 years, trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, tons of PTSD, people getting their limbs blown off. The Taliban took over in 11 days. And now they want to provoke a war with Russia over Ukraine. They also want to provoke a war with China over Taiwan. They are, we're talking for a couple of weeks about regime change in Iran as well. So giving uh, some people the right to. Print their own money, the right to tax, the right to conscript—these are things that make wars and massive, deadly conflict much more likely than they otherwise would be. That's why the Libertarian Institute is important, and that's why I think the Voluntarist Handbook is important.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm—I'm I'm actually really glad you got into the uh, Russia-Ukraine stuff because it is something I wanted to—to to talk to you about. Um, of course, you, like you work closely with uh, Scott Horton. I think a lot of our uh, listeners will be familiar with. Uh, him and he's just been a a powerhouse in the anti-war movement for a long, long time, um, and and one of the interesting things that happened, of course, here in Canada, we're as guilty as as the United States as being a part of uh, this conflict and and sending weapons to the Ukrainians and whatnot, and and but it looks like there's evidence of of more than that too. I mean, when when Russia when this first happened, uh, you know, Russia was had released some footage saying like, look, these are there are Canadians uh fighting in the Ukraine, uh fighting against our soldiers and and of course it was all kind of washed over. And but then the next thing and the Canadian government denies it. And the next thing you know, sure enough, they've arrested some the Russians have captured some Canadians in in uh you know when they were fighting at that steel mill and whatnot, they captured some Canadian guys. It's uh you know a terrible, terrible thing. That were there. I don't see any point to it. Um.
1: So one of the big things that governments do, a a, uh, book written in 1928 titled Falsehood in Wartime by a guy named Arthur Ponsonby talks about all the lies through the media in the First World War. And he says, why is it that we get such widespread, totally ridiculous lies from both sides? It's like, You would think that the Americans and the German and the British and the French and the Russian and the Austrian governments are all like working together and saying, all right, we're going to lie to our population. You lie to yours. That would seem a little too complex, but there has to be something else to it. And he says, look, it's not that they're in cahoots with each other. What happens is is that if you want to if you want to sell someone on something and they have to pay a really really high price, high price as in you're going to die, you're going to get your arms and legs possibly blown off, you're going to get half of your face melted with mustard gas, you have to tell them The most outrageous thing to get them to be willing to make that sacrifice. So the reality is, if the U.S. does nothing in Ukraine, the current regime in Ukraine would be much more favorable to Russia and Vladimir Putin than it would be to Joe Biden and Klaus Schwab. Much like Viktor Yanukovych between 2004 and 2014. That is what would happen if there wasn't a war. So they have to instead say if Putin takes over Russia, uh, Ukraine, he's going to b- basically exonerate the thing. It, it's going to be uh, completely flattened. Then he's going to go to Poland and then he's going to go to France and then Portugal and then England and then South America, then Mexico. And then Vladimir Putin is going to take over America and murder civilians just the way he is in uh Kiev. That is what they have to do in order to get you all riled up. But the reality is it would just be a different regime that's more favorable. So we should actually expect lies to always take place because they're asking for the ultimate sacrifice. They're telling you to bear the highest cost, Um, just as you might have to really sell someone if you want to have them pay, you know, 20, 30, 40 grand for a car. Uh, If you want someone to spend their entire life and never see their family again, you got to really sell them. You got to say Putin's coming almost tomorrow. Vladimir Putin hacked our elections. He installed Donald Trump. Uh, That was a lie. They then said uh, Vladimir Putin put uh, targets on the head of Americans fighting in Afghanistan, known as uh, the Russian Afghan bounty uh, hoax that was published and pushed by The New York Times. Pentagon later came out and said, we don't actually have evidence for it, but we are suspicious. Then uh, they said that uh, Joe Biden was on the presidential debate stage and said what he's talking about, uh, what Trump is talking about with my son's laptop, 50 intelligence officers have actually said it's a Russian plant. And this is from five directors of the the CIA from both parties. So now, you know, it has to be true. Of course, it later turns out that it was Hunter Biden's laptop to the surprise of no one. Again, it's not huge that the president's son is a crackhead. It's not the crime. It's the cover up and the blaming of uh, this thing on uh, on Putin. So they first surround Russia with NATO countries and then start vilifying the leader, just like they did with Assad, what they tried to do, what they successfully did with Muammar Gaddafi, what they successfully did with Saddam Hussein, what they successfully did in Waco, Texas with David Koresh surround someone vilify the leader and therefore you're justified in murdering the civilians so we should always expect lies when it comes to war because they're asking you to bear the, uh, the the highest cost i think i interrupted you i'm sorry but no. <laughs> if i forget that book that book falsehood in wartime it's so it's so cool because if it were written today about the first world war you'd have sort of like the thesis in the back of your mind that he's pulling you uh, with the first world war to try to make it match up with the war on terror and everything he wrote this in 1928 so it's so valuable to see even then the media was lying by default about uh, uh, about the nature of uh, of these conflicts another big thing is they say well nato is the pro democracy organization so it tugs at people's heartstrings they think well democracy's good and everything uh, well, democracy is also referred to as mob rule by the ignorant. So no need to. The, the great microphone and computer we're talking on was not the result of democratic decision making. It was people acting voluntarily. There's nothing wrong with being anti-democratic, even NATO itself. Greece is part of NATO and it was ruled by a military dictatorship in the late 60s to early 70s. Francisco Franco was the head of spain and spain was part of nato and he was a fascist dictator a guy named uh, antonio salazar in portugal uh was the head of uh portugal and they weren't kicked out of nato for being anti-democratic u.s is an oligarchy and they're not uh, ever criticized by the head of nato so d- pulling at people's heartstrings with the fake stories with claiming that democracy is inherently better than uh something like monarchy now, all of those lies are so cheap and they're getting people to bear such a high cost to defend to defend Vladimir Zelensky's regime. It's not that everyone in Ukraine's gonna die or they're gonna live. The choice is who sits on the throne and the guy they're defending on the throne, Zelensky. It instituted military conscription outlawed competing political parties nationalized the media he's not, he's um confiscated property from uh eastern orthodox uh churches all over ukraine um he, he's punishing people for speaking russian i mean this is the pro democracy pro freedom guy not to mention the bombing of poland which he then you know lied and said putin did so all of these lies are so vitally important because it actually could lead to a third World War, just as Pat Buchanan predicted in 1999, that by surrounding Russia and vilifying any leader, uh, we are going to end up driving uh, Russia into the arms of Beijing, and that has already happened. L- Lloyd Austin came out and said there's basically no uh, communication between the American and Chinese military at this point. Just such, such a dangerous um uh, precedent to uh, t- to be set. That's why we think it's important uh, at the Libertarian Institute to uh, make all this information available so people know that it's not America versus Russia. It's like Biden and his friends versus Putin and his friends. And the average American Ukrainian Chinaman and Russian have so much more in common with each other than we do with Joe Biden Joe Biden gets to make executive orders. How many listeners have made executive orders and forced 300 million people to abide by them? I'm going to guess zero percent. We have nothing in common with the psychopaths who claim to rule over us. So saying that I'm on team Biden or I'm on team Zelensky, Zelensky would enslave you if you had come out of your mother in the geographical area of Ukraine instead of Canada or America that is why the libertarian institute's important we provide uh the antidote to the council on uh, foreign relations
0: yeah well and as the the as when we're talking about lies in the media i mean there's lots of you know you don't have to go back to the the first world war to to do that i mean there's stuff like the whole afghan afghanistan thing has been blown out of the water you know you know before before the americans even left afghanistan i mean it was there was so much uh everybody was so tired of that war uh vietnam the same thing right i mean you can i mean you can look now and in hindsight see all the things that happened very clearly and and but it's the same playbook they're still using right now in in uh ukraine and and russia and and china right
1: yeah it uh it, it reminds me of uh the emails i get where uh, my name is so-and-so, I've inherited $10 million, I just need $1,000 right now so I could get to the $10 million, then I'll bring it to you in America. Now, I don't know who sent that email, but I am so familiar with that type of scam and I understand the incentives of people want money for working very little. And I can see, well, if he really had this money, why would he come to a random person like me? So by understanding the nature of that scam, it didn't even occur to me to could I help this guy get his $10 million? I go, nope, this is a scam. Delete, block email. That's the type of attitude that we should have toward the press with regard to. You know, uh, new uh, intelligence information came out stating, nope, I, I don't even need to hear all the details. Nigerian scam on a much bigger level. I'm deleting you out of my inbox and blocking you on my television. Just look at it but for laughs. Family Guy is much more uh, of an accurate portrayal of the real world than the mainstream media. Family Guy doesn't even pretend to be real. Someone gets killed and then they're in the next scene. That's about just as legitimate as Momar Gaddafi has uh, given his troops uh, Viagra in order to commit mass rape against the wives of the rebels. Uh, this was said by um, uh, Condoleezza Rice or uh, Susan Rice. It it was said at the United Nations. It was also said on uh, CNN. All of these lies just come forth. You know, uh, Assad gassing his own people. Turns out. Uh, that people like Aaron Mate at The Nation have just obliterated those official stories. Other lies, like, well, uh, the fact that uh, Jake Sullivan, the current national security advisor, sent an email to Hillary Clinton saying that uh, make sure that Hillary knows that AQ is on our side in Syria. In other words, they're fighting against the Assad regime alongside Jabhat al Nusra, which is Al Qaeda in Syria. So, The idea that, well, we need a foreign policy to weaken al-Qaeda this way. We don't have another 9-11. What they actually do is they side with al-Qaeda when it's convenient. They also sided with al-Qaeda when they were called LIFG, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, um, against Muammar Gaddafi. And they sided with al-Qaeda in Yemen against the Houthi regime, which uh, the Saudi Arabian regime was fighting against. So – Uh, At this point, there's just no uh, reason to take anything that the war machine says seriously, because even in the worst circumstances, Saddam Hussein's an evil guy. Bin Laden's an evil guy just the fact that uh there are evil people doesn't then mean the solution is to give the department of defense more money for more bombs which will inevitably create even more terrorists once you start killing civilians over on uh the, over in uh, the, the middle east i think and uh around 911 there were about 400 members of al qaeda and now there's like tens of thousands of uh mujahideen fighters And they don't even make the news because the enemy has switched to Russia, mostly and partially China. So we got to stop falling for the scam. It's just so humiliating. And it could actually potentially lead to a third world war just because people want Zelensky uh uh, at the head of the government instead of a guy uh, it probably wouldn't be yanukovych at this point but it would be someone a little more favorable to russia oh devastating two countries that border each other are on good terms the regimes are on good terms oh my god i can't imagine anything worse
0: the capitalism and morality calgary seminar is happening saturday may 20th 2023 at the danish canadian club in calgary alberta canada If you're interested in the Austrian School of Economics, this is a seminar you do not want to miss. Per Byland will be there. He is Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University and Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute. Danny Leroy, who is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Lethbridge and a Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute, will also be there. This event is guaranteed to sell out. So go to capitalismandmorality.com or use the link in the show notes and promo code Dgpodcast 15 to get 15% off the ticket price. Another thing about this this uh, when they're using you know, Russia to, to scare Americans into buying into this thing, um, or, or China for that matter, you know and and China's a a big country by population and they have this huge GDP now but when you're looking at those type of economic numbers like GDP per capita i mean and it's the same in Russia it's the same in China it's the same in Ukraine these are still very unproductive places in by most metrics and the idea that they could sustain a war machine that would make it uh you know to to the Mexican border where they could potentially start taking over parts of of the United States it it seems laughable also right
1: yeah it, even if it is i think uh uh america being a co- colony of uh russia I don't, i'm not sure how much different it would be than joe biden ruling us i mean uh, i think the federal government confiscated 6.27 trillion dollars last year um but that's how much they spent and then put taxpayers on the hook for I wonder if Vladimir Putin were given, you know, if the military just said, Putin, do whatever you want. I wonder if he could get away with stealing a trillion dollars from the American taxpayer. Uh, So uh, even if we're dealing with, well, we don't want someone exploiting us and mistreating us, the Federal Reserve and the CIA and the FBI and the Democrats and the Republicans have done much more to screw over America than she and Putin and uh Trudeau comes close with uh, the the heart attacks that he almost gives me every time he talks. <laughs> but uh, but but other than that, uh, guys like Biden are much more of a threat to us. So it's the it's the classic example of the abusive husband who tells his wife that she needs to watch out because other guys could potentially be dangerous. Such a manipulative tactic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very good point. Let's bring it back to your, your book a bit here, too. Uh, you do have a. Uh, section in there, some quotes on agorism. Uh, and like I mentioned, I do like to bring it back to Canadian content as much as I can. Sam Konkin is uh, probably the best known Canadian in, you know, in our philosophical realm. He was from here in Alberta, Edmonton. Um, can you, do you know, do you know much about Sam Conkin? Like, do you know much of his history and his work very well? Very little. No. I I try
1: not uh, to get too into the personalities because every time you meet your heroes, it's a little (laughs) devastating every now and then. Sam Konkin (laughs) defines agorism. Simply, it is thought and action consistent with freedom. Agorism is the consistent integration of libertarian theory with counter-economic practice. An agorist is one who acts consistently for freedom and in freedom. So anytime you are operating outside of the state apparatus, you are engaged in agorist activity between consenting adults A lot of people do this all the time. Anytime you have a garage sale, anytime you hire someone off the books, that is an act of agorism. By the state uh, maintaining its monopoly and getting itself involved in all of the transactions within the population, that's how it gains a great deal of its power. So what Konkin is saying is the opposite of that is getting them out of All transactions as much as humanly possible. So he advocates agorism. Do as much off the book's work as you possibly can. And once you see the crimes that uh, the U.S. regime is uh, not just in foreign policy, but also domestically, uh, places like uh, the Department of Health. Uh, in kansas city in arizona in new york have poured bleach on unregulated food that was being distributed to the homeless because they weren't doing so without a license once you see that this is part of what you're funding then you say well gosh i not only have the right to engage in economic activity while excluding this group called government group or the congress group i actually have an obligation to not be hanging out with these people just as you know uh the government will say well if uh, you're part of the mob you're uh, even if you're not directly involved in the killing you're still a part of it because you've associated with them i wouldn't want to associate with all the terrible things that the government's doing so i try to uh, be an agorist as uh, as much as humanly possible uh, those are uh, the the reason that konkin is so empowering is because if y- your whole thing is well uh we got to end the federal reserve we got to bring the troops home we got to abolish the fbi those are all important and of course uh should be done but it's so hard to get uh you know gratification from those things when they're so far in the future and just by talking about it, it you don't see an immediate effect but with agorism every time you make an exchange you're building more of an agorist network off the books and away from the state so you're a- able to get that immediate gratification of wow, gosh, I should be able to uh, do this much more. Classic case of a guy who tried to get a permit for building steps to his house. Ne- state never approved it. They're like, well, it's going to be about $60,000. And so he said, screw it and just built his own. Once you realize that the cost of dealing with the state is sometimes so high, eventually agorism just because uh, becomes much more economically profitable. And thank heavens for the inefficiency of the state at some points. When uh, people first started getting ripped off on PayPal, you could call the FBI and say, I've been ripped off. My computer's been hacked. And they've said, well, that is very unfortunate. Uh, You want to help us uh, set up some guy uh, and be an informant? Nope. Okay. Well, we can't help you with your PayPal transfer because we don't know anything. So what (laughs) places like PayPal and Venmo and Apple and Google did is they have their own security. They have things like two-step verification. That is a security mechanism that people use to protect themselves and their property. The very thing the state says they are the necessary uh, tool in order uh, for for things like security to exist. So anytime you're operating outside of the state, you are being an agorist and you're weakening the biggest terrorists in society, which are governments. I mean, I can't imagine – you look at all the deaths by the Proud Boys, all the deaths by this alleged group called Patriot Front, and you just compare them to the governments across the world. It's it's just not even close. So, uh, yeah, I think we definitely have an obligation to not associate with bad people, whether they're in the public sector or the private sector. Agorism is a great way to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. V- very well said. Thanks for that. Um, you know, yeah, I guess on, on agorism, too, you yeah. You know the one we see here lots is uh, you know the state coming in and shutting down uh, little kids lemonade stands or or finding finding their parents five hundred dollars because some kids are selling lemonade on a on a on a path near a park. It's it's absolutely disgusting when they do stuff like that.
1: Yeah, the, the, they're always punishing the productive people and encouraging the parasites. It's uh, it, it's so discouraging. Like you know, the, the people will you know would say, "Well, well BLM's doing great work uh, and uh, all this stuff." But anyone who's a business owner, you're default guilty of immediate greed, even though you're just voluntarily providing products, services, and job opportunities. People don't have to associate with you if they don't want. But all these rioters, well, they get totally defended. And anytime you criticize them, well, if if, if there wasn't so much a systemic fill in the blank, whatever term they're using nowadays. <laughs> Well, then they wouldn't have to riot and they wouldn't have to steal baby formula and all this stuff as if they've been like forced to have kids or kids just fall from the sky and end up in random people's places. But Ayn Rand said one of the things you have to really watch out for is the vilification of productive people and the uplifting of the parasites. And the parasites could be anyone who just steals from your local store or the biggest parasites would be banks who, uh, who risk their own money. And then get the taxpayer to bail them out. So parasites at all levels can't be discrimin- uh, discriminatory based on class when it comes to the parasites. We got to have uh, the, the same standard, but that is a huge thing to look out for. Vilifying the good productive people, and um, you know, a- admiring the uh, parasites in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, your your personal favorite essay in the Voluntarist Handbook. What is it?
1: It is from a Canadian. Give me a second to is it really? find it. It is six questions for status to buy. Yes. Uh,
0: uh, uh, the Molyneux.
1: Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. this is a section from his book, Practical Anarchy, the Freedom of the Future. And he says, when considering status objections to anarchic solutions, the six questions below are most useful. He says, number one, does government actually solve the problem in question? People often say that government courts solve the problem of injustice. However, these courts can take many years to render a verdict and cost the plaintiff and defendant hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. Government courts are also used to harass and intimidate, creating a chilling effect for unpopular opinions or groups. So you get this a lot where people will say the problem with anarchy is there's no guarantee that I will be protected. There's no guarantee that the country won't be invaded. There's no guarantee that the poor will be helped. Yes, that is true. There is no guarantee. There's also no guarantee under fascism, communism, syndicalism, minarchism, or any time human beings interact with each other. So that is uh, very important. Does government actually solve the problem in question? Uh, saying that we need government to usher in things like universal health care is like saying uh, everyone is educated because government uh, controls K-12 education. Giving someone a coercively funded monopoly on allegedly solving an issue doesn't actually solve the issue. Second question, can the criticism of the anarchic solution be equally applied To the status solution. The biggest example is when people say, but under a free market, there is a potential that all the customers could see value in one person or group, and then that group could then get a monopoly, and then monopolies will just have tons of power. They will then advocate that the state monopolize a central bank, then monopolize compulsory education, then monopolize licensing. So their fear of what might happen under a voluntary society without a state. Um, is something that they already advocate with the state. Number three, is anarchy accepted as a core value in non-political spheres? So you might think of uh, the unregulated uh, talking market where people can have conversations in an unregulated way where there's not a third party employed by the state making sure everything one person's saying is true and they're just regulating it to make sure people aren't saying anything violent or absurd or incorrect because that might yield uh, disutility without uh, the society. So anytime someone says, I really value the fact that uh, homosexuals are uh, adult homosexuals are able to, um, you know, I- engage in uh, any relationship they want, so long as it's consenting, just like straight couples should be able to. Well, those same people and everyone else should also be able to engage economically with whoever they uh, find uh, find value. And so once you find the anarchy that people love, you it doesn't take too much work to say, well, why have that principle for the dating realm? Anything between consenting adults is legitimate and not have it for the economic realm. Fourth question, would the person advocating statism perform state functions himself? This is so important because you can ask someone, they're like, You can ask them, uh, so you think rape and murder are bad. Well, would you have the right to stop a murder or a rape? And they will unapologetically say, absolutely, yes. I might be scared. uh, I'm not a good aim with a gun, but I certainly have the right to do so. Then you say, would you put someone in a cage for not chipping in for a local educational uh, facility? It's no different than saying you should be forced to fund Catholic church schools or else you go to jail. Well, what about state schools who also teach things that could be incorrect and could be very biased and could be heavily slanted, just as the Catholic Church does, or any other person on the planet would pick uh, some things to report on and teach kids and uh, exclude other things? Are you willing to put someone in a cage for that? If you think they should, well, that's totally fine. It's like just use the Jehovah's Witness rule. They will come to my house and say – you're going to burn in a fiery pit for all of eternity. This is terrible. You should read this book. You should attend this service. You should say these prayers. And if I say, no, sorry, go, go away, they will let me deal with burning in a fiery pit for all of eternity but if you're like, well, I don't want to chip in for this or that uh, government operation, it's like, oh, well, then you should obviously be in jail because there might be bad things that happen. Billions of people burning in hell forever, they should be able to choose that. Uh, not chipping in for a library or a school, well, we can't allow that to happen or else there might be bad things. So the very fact that people are uneasy about enforcing the things that they claim to support uh, is one of the great indicators that people are have a very shallow Uh, belief in uh, the concept of statism. Two more. Number five, he says, can something be both voluntary and coercive at the same time? The great justification for democratic government is that it is the result of the consent of the governed, as opposed to monarchy, which is just someone imposing themselves on you. So you could then ask, what kind of contract is this, this sort of social contract that we have under democracy? Because If I don't hold up my end of the contract, pay taxes or, uh, you know, abide by rules and regulations, I go to jail. But what if government doesn't hold up their end of the contract for protecting me? Does Joe Biden go to jail? Do the policemen arrest themselves? Do I no longer have to chip in for the prisons and uh, the libraries and everything else? Can I, you know, compete with the post office's monopoly on first class mail? what kind of contract is this? It's not a contract at all. It's just a list of obligations. So actually, the claim that uh, it's by the consent of the government makes no sense, considering that if I don't have the right to go around and issue taxes and I don't have the right to go around and issue regulations, how can I then delegate that right to the Congress? I don't have that right myself, but I can vote for John McCain to enforce that right on others. So it's Uh, it's not that democracy and monarchy one is voluntary and the other is involuntary they're both involuntary what makes the market unique is that it is the process of voluntary uh, mutually beneficial cooperative activities between adults and of course you know uh, children are uh, are also involved in this because anything parents buy uh, kids end up bearing the cost but that is so important because the idea that, uh, well, at least, uh, in democracy, you get to choose your leaders. What better represents people's choices? What they voluntarily buy or when they're given a choice between two crooked politicians and no choice to opt out? Cause you can choose, you know, collectively you can vote for Biden instead of Trump, but. It's not like they let you opt out of funding the government to try doing that with the IRS. Even Blockbuster, MySpace and Sears, you were able to opt out of associating with those groups and they went under. Not happy about it, but if that's what people want to do, that actually differentiates voluntary from coercive interaction, not the illusion of voting. Finally, he says, does political organization change human nature? So people will often say that, well, now people are greedy and they can't be trusted. Therefore, we need a government to which people like Larkin Rose and Stefan Molyneux have asked, what species do you want running the government? Owls, zebras, plants, what humans, these things you say are so greedy, you're going to solve this problem of human greed by giving some humans the right to coercively rule hundreds of millions of strangers or the idea that well look the reality is people are stupid and ignorant so you got to have some sort of government calling the shots as if people turn brilliant once they're elected to office or people are just totally stupid and then they walk into a voting booth and then they're brilliant and then they just vote unbiasedly all the bias all the ignorance all the evil does not disappear when you usher a state into uh the uh society that uh, you're discussing so i thought uh reading it's much shorter than my uh explanation which was way too long it's only uh like two and a half pages but um i I thought that was such a uh great section from molyneux's book uh practical anarchy because it gets to the root of so uh many of the ideas just briefly and deeply gets uh it really strikes at the root of uh, the idea of statism and how absurd it is once you start uh, observing it objectively
0: yeah 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 no i De- definitely not too long. I-, I thought that was really good, um, and uh, yeah, I was rolling the dice there. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize I was gonna beef up my Canadian uh, content quota with that answer. So thanks for that. Um, let's hear about your about your podcast. I tune into it once in a while. I think you're doing a great job. Um, you got a lot of episodes out these days. Uh, just tell us about it.
1: So I started the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast just because I wanted to record conversations that I had with authors that I really admired so I could watch them later. And I go, well, I might as well you know, publish these so other people can benefit from them too. And then it just snowballed. My whole thing uh, is I want non-libertarians, people who don't agree with us, I want them to be able to click on any video and start learning. Some videos are thirty seconds. Other videos five hours and ten minutes. The goal is not to have a weekly show that's exactly an hour. And I just got to put something out uh, because it's been a few days. I only want to upload things when I think it's really valuable for the uh, the, the viewers' uh, time. I think I have two hundred interviews. A lot of uh, every time I come across a really important article, I try to upload the audio version of that. I try to do uh, clips from blog posts at uh, the Libertarian Institute just because I know that we're competing with a lot of uh, soundbite media. So I try not to make uh, too many long-form podcasts. But yeah, I've had people like Brian Kaplan, Tom Woods, Scott Horton, Michael Humer. A lot of uh, the people who I've always admired have been kind enough to uh, come on and uh, put forth the uh, thesis of their book or uh, articles that uh, they've written in uh, the past. So yeah, uh, I try to keep it ad-free um, just because, uh, again, if I'm trying to focus on people who don't agree with us, I don't want them to have to sit through some buy birch gold. I'm um, not saying you shouldn't buy birch gold. I know nothing about it, but I just heard that like five minutes before we started, so it was in my head. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the podcast can be found on any of the podcatchers as well as YouTube and, most importantly, odyssey.com.
0: Okay, okay, very cool. Is there anything else you want to plug or anything before we end this?
1: I think it's better if I just plug the Volunteerist handbook, remind people that they can get a free PDF. I've learned that if you mention five things. People will right. be too overwhelmed. Sure. But if I say there's one thing, and the reason I put this book together is because I was originally a progressive and then became a libertarian. These are the 50 articles and essays that really changed my mind out of the thousands of things I read. I said, if I could recommend one book to someone, what would that book be? I'm thinking, well, The Law by Bastiat's good, Hazlitt's good, Hoppe's good, Tom Woods is good, Scott Horton's good but i just didn't have one thing so i thought i would put that one thing together this is what i recommend non-libertarians read if they want a good understanding of where we're coming from
0: yeah well it is a fantastic collection i i really enjoyed it i and yeah i appreciate that something like this exists for for that exact reason so thank you for that and uh, and and thanks for coming on keith this was awesome
1: anytime brother and uh, i don't uh, enforce the copyright on uh, any of this so one of you guys wants to translate it into uh, French Canadian? It's
0: all yours. Oh, perfect! Yeah, I can. I might be able to help you with that. Yeah, do it, brother. Yeah. Oh,
1: and if anyone from China is listening, I'd love those 1.4 billion people to also read this. Translate it into Chinese, please.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Keith.
1: Thank you, man. Take care.
0: That was Keith Knight. Read The Voluntarist Handbook. The Darcy Giroux Podcast is a production of CapitalismAndMorality.com. And if you like the Darcy Giroux Podcast, subscribe on Substack.